You artists have a special relationship to beauty. Beauty, like truth, brings joy to the human heart. Beauty is an invitation to savor life and a dream of the future. Beauty is a key to the mystery and a call to transcendence. Beauty is the vocation bestowed on you by the Creator. And the gift of artistic talent. None can sense more deeply than you, artists. Ingenious creators of beauty that you are. That beauty will save the world. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for tuning into JP2 Radio for another episode of Letter to Artists. Brought to you from The Vault at John Paul the Great Catholic University, the show is inspired by the beloved St. Pope John Paul II's encyclical, Letter to Artists, and led by Catholic artists from our community who desire to share with you their journey in creativity and their journey of faith through the development of their artistic talents. I am your host, Bailey Garland, and each week I have been chatting with different artists as we explore a different creative medium. Today, we will be talking with two writers who will share their experience with novels, poetry, editing works, and more. Our guiding excerpt from St. John Paul II's letter to artist is, Obedient to their inspiration in creating works, both worthwhile and beautiful, artists not only enrich the cultural heritage of each nation and of all humanity, but they also render an exceptional social service in favor of the common good. Joining me in the studio this week are two of JP Catholic's Humanities faculty, who are a great witness of love to their students both inside and outside the classroom, first through their beautiful marriage, second through their dedication to call us, their students, to excellence, and third through the pursuit of their personal God-given gifts in writing. Later in the show, we will be chatting with Professor Elizabeth Cramp about her experience in writing poetry, writing poetry and essays, as well as her work with the Elizabeth Ann Seton Shrine in Maryland. However, joining me first in the studio is theologian and prize-winning poet, Professor Stephen Cramp. So welcome, Professor Cramp. It's great to be here, Bailey. Nice to see you. <laughs> nice to see you, too. I'm very excited to have you. Um, do you mind just leading us in a quick prayer to begin? Oh, I'd love to. I'd great. love to. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Loving Father, we thank you for this time together today and for this opportunity to contemplate further your beauty and the ways that we can serve you and serve your beauty in this world. We pray that we might be guided by your Holy Spirit and that all those who hear this conversation might be touched and inspired to do more beautiful work for you and to find new ways to express your love, your love and your goodness and your truth, and as those are revealed in your beauty. We pray all of these things in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, Professor Cram, why don't we just have a start by you telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I get asked this on a regular basis, Bailey, and it is always tough to distill. I, I should get better at it. I should just have a paragraph that I memorize. <laughs> but, um, so I'm from California. I was um, born in Southern California, and then when I was 10, we moved up to the Bay Area. So I, I know the urban areas here at least pretty well by now, having lived now in San Diego. Um, But I also lived up in Oregon for a while, and I went to school up there, went to the University of Oregon. I played music and bands up in Portland for five years after that, and then I went to grad school at the University of Iowa. Um, And after that, I taught at the University of California campus in Merced when it first opened up for a few years. Um, I came back to my faith in 2008, and from that point, I went back to Franciscan University in Steubenville and got a master's degree in theology there and also taught there in the English department. Um, and then I was called the three years of youth ministry up near Seattle. So continuing my exploration of the West Coast, you know, we came, we came back. At that point, I, I got married to my wife when I was uh, teaching at UC Merced. 
And after three years of ministry, uh, our Lord let me know that it was time to wrap up up there. And I looked around, and pretty soon I was down in the San Diego area. And now I'm at JP Catholic. Oh, wow. So yeah, so it's it's been a lot a lot of crossing the country. I haven't got over to the East Coast yet. If if Jesus has any plans for me to go to the East Coast, you know, we, we're gonna have to start covering ground pretty soon. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but we've been all over, and it's been a beautiful experience. But the the really important thing for me was that I was I was raised in the faith, um, and uh, I've got no excuse. Um, I mean, I, you, I can say, you know, catechesis wasn't exactly strong in the late 80s and all that, but it was really on me. And I left my faith, I uh, left at least the practice of my faith. I never never lost my general Catholic sensibility. I looked at the world through Catholic eyes, whether you like it or not, you're kind of stuck being Catholic once you're raised Catholic and you have that apprehension of God's love and beauty. Um, so I was I was formed in that way irreversibly, I would say. Yeah, but I, at the same time, I, but I wasn't formed uh, in terms of my faith practice very well, and I was given a lot of leeway at a very young age. And in my fallenness, and also my my own unique arrogance, mm-hmm. um, it was easy for me to decide that I knew better than the church in all sorts of ways. And so, as soon as I got to the University of Oregon, I basically decided I didn't need to go to mass anymore. I think I went once or twice to the Newman Center, um, and then I was, you know, like most of the other students on campus finding some hints of transcendence elsewhere, feeling like, you know, the beauty of a walk on a Sunday morning was equivalent to going and participating in the Mass and all of that. But um, it was really disastrous for me. Um, college was fine. I didn't make a lot of great friends um, in the way that I had when I was younger, and I often felt kind of disconnected from uh, people who didn't share some basic values or some, you know, some of that lingering Catholicness that was in me. Um, but ultimately, it was really uh, a problem for me because I got up to play music in Portland, and there I was still haunted by God in some way. You know, Francis Thompson has that poem about the hound of heaven pursuing mm-hmm. you, and I, there were these moments of grace, and I would I would go down to St. Philip Neri uh, on Division Street in Portland. Every once in a while, I would go down to Mass there. I, w- I wouldn't tell my roommates where I was going. I would just get on my bike and kind of zip down and go to the Sunday evening uh, Mass that they had there. And I had these beautiful experiences, but it was never quite enough for me to lock back in with a regular practice of my faith. And so, um, yes, that leads to trouble, though. So I was out of the church for, you know, off and on. I I would occasionally come back, like I said, but for the most part, for 14 years, I didn't practice my faith. So you said you came back to the faith in in 2008. Mm -hmm. Um, Were you already becoming a writer throughout all these years? I'm guessing you were studying English. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that kind of fits in on a separate track. But mm-hmm. um, when I was young, I used to write stories. Even when I was in grade school, and I got a lot of like very positive feedback. I had some great teachers who supported me, so that I always just felt like, oh yeah, I'm a writer. I could do this. This is like something that came naturally to me. Um, which is funny because I was seven, and I don't think I was actually writing masterpieces. The only one I remember was a story about talking shoes. Oh, and and when people, you know, there's all this stuff that happened, but thankfully, due to their talking shoes, people would never got lonely. And at the end, that was their consolation for you know, all the stuff that they'd been through. And I, and I remember I got like some blue ribbon on that and they hung it up on the wall at school. And I, I just remember feeling like, yeah, that's kind of what I do. I mm-hmm. write stories. Other kids are better than me at basketball, maybe and soccer, but I can do this. And so that, that continued. And so I was always writing fiction. But then I didn't really see where it was going to go. And I, I kind of had this um, curiosity about the rest of the world, and I was becoming more and more interested in music. And so in high school, I was in a rock band with some friends of mine, and they were like, we need somebody to write some words. And I said, I can write words. I've done that before. You know, some songs about talking shoes, you know. <laughs> and so I, so I, I remember I, I wrote some songs, and it was interesting because even then I was starting to test my faith and challenge things and 
I had my doubts, but even then my songs were still really rich with Catholic imagery and with these longings for God. Like, I, I, like our best song was called Baptism. Oh, wow. And like, it wasn't necessarily about a baptismal font. It was like, you know, like I think I was on my, I think it was on retreat in high school and I was like looking at a creek that ran through the retreat site and I was just out under the trees and it wasn't necessarily a good song, but it's interesting that like these ideas were there. Um, and yeah, so I was writing lyrics throughout high school and then through college, I, you know, band broke up. I had to learn how to play guitar so I could keep playing music. And so I was kind of a folky guy. And then I was playing in these pretty loud bands, but it was always with a really poetic sensibility. So the lyrics were, I guess if we look back at, you know, God's providence, that was a way for him to guide me into writing poetry without knowing it. So when it came time to apply to graduate schools, I was like, well, I've been writing these things that look like poems. Maybe I can go to grad school in poetry. And I did. And, you know, I, I, kind of tried to make them look a little bit more like poems but for the most part it was the it was already the the techniques and the approaches to using language that I learned writing lyrics for songs that I was able to apply there. So when you um, applied for graduate school were you already back in your faith did you find that you were exploring a lot of that maybe inner struggle through your poetry? There was definitely inner struggle being explored but I was not yet practicing my faith at all. In mm -hmm. fact I was getting farther and farther away from things because the the worlds that I was moving in were pretty inhospitable to serious religious seeking, you could say. Um, at one point, this is kind of a tangent, but it's an interesting and maybe illustrative story. When I was living in Portland, I had a really good friend, um, like, like a good friend. He, you know, he, he and I were pretty close. And he was a couple years younger than me, though. And so I think you know, he, he was actually probably like four years younger than me. I was like 25. I think he was 21. So I think he looked up to me a little bit, but we were really close. And um, I remember we made an arrangement to go out and get coffee one day. And so we, we just met up at a coffee shop to catch up because we were working a lot and we hadn't seen each other in a while. And uh, I, I can't remember exactly how Jesus came up, but Jesus came up over the course of the conversation. And at some points, I yeah, like it's it wasn't just that I went to mass every once in a while. I also worked at a Catholic hospital. And so when I wanted to shirk work for a little while, I'd go up to the meditation room and kind of not dial in for a little while as a, as a, an orderly. And the only book there was the Bible. So I was reading the Bible during my work shift sometimes. And I was having these amazing experiences, um, hearing God speak to me uh, really directly. Like I remember once like reading the gospel of Luke and saying, if I ever met the man who said these words, I would throw myself at his feet. And I didn't know where that impulse came from, but I just knew that, the voice behind the words that I was reading there on that piece of paper was the voice of God. It was the voice of authority. It was the voice of love. And there was nothing better. There was no person that was going to come along who was going to be better than that. Mm -hmm. So I remember Jesus came up at one point. This might have been when I was working as, as a security guard for that same hospital. And there was a, a church that we were using to park cars at the, for the employees. And behind it, there was um, a barn that a bunch of skateboarders would hang out in. And my friend Luke really liked to skateboard. And so I think it was around the time um, because he was like, oh, yeah, the skate church. And I said, oh, what do you mean? Like the skateboarders? He says, oh, it's a church behind that Baptist church. They like set up the skate ramp and they get kids in there to skate because they got a really nice half pipe. But then they make them listen to get some guy talk about Jesus. So I was like, oh, Jesus. Interesting. Like, and so I, I didn't say anything too positive, but I wasn't negative. And I still remember saying something fairly, you know, benign or maybe even positive about Jesus. And Luke looked at me and remember, this is a good friend of mine. And he looked at me and I remember the, the word that came to mind was snake bit. Like he recoiled and he said, you're down with Jesus. 
And it was not friendly, like, I'm curious about you and what's happening in your life and you're my friend. Like, tell me more about this. It was more like, if you go any further here, we're not going to be friends. And wow. it's gonna, there are going to be some serious repercussions. And I, so I had like a kind of a, an instantaneous calculation there. And I said, okay, so I can either be true to myself and even my best friends here are probably going to cut me off. And there's like cool people. Like there were a lot of black and like Luke was like, you know, handsome and ragged and cool and had like dyed black hair and rode a bike, like a fixed gear bike. And he's like a bike messenger and played in these bands. And I remember thinking everything that is precious to me in my life right now, like separated from my family by like 500 miles and I'm going to lose it all. And what am I going to be left with? And I was terrified of that because I was young and cowardly, honestly. So I, I remember kind of dialing it back and talking about Jesus as like a political revolutionary. And, you know, you can talk about Jesus in certain ways and it's safe. Right. And it was cool. I patched things over and I, I stopped being you know, suspect, but it was, but it always stayed with me. I realized if I'm open about my curiosity about supernatural realities in general, but especially about the person of Jesus, I'm going to lose it. And um, yeah, at that point that was, I put all my eggs in that basket. So it was hard for me to, to really think about what life would be like without this amazing musical community. Cause it had been work to like meet people and get connected and play in bands and stuff. So I, I really put in so much time and I'd invested so much of my sense of myself in that, that giving it up was going to be really painful. Right. And so um, sort of what led you, was it through that, that personal journey of just like wrestling with yourself through those writings or was it the influence of somebody else to the words, you know, right in front of you? Because as a writer, you also read a lot. So I'm wondering if, it, I mean, you said you were reading the Bible um, just little by little. Is that what tugged on your heart to start returning? I, I wish I could point to some writers who had brought me back. I remember my mom, she's she's great. I'm sure she was praying for me all the time. I didn't realize what agony I was causing her. My dad's faithful, but I don't know if I caused him the same level of acute discomfort that I caused my mom. But she would, occasionally she'd slip me, you know, Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain. Hey, here's a good book. I thought you might like it. And I sat on my shelf. I never opened it once. Um, so I was actually much more interested in the, in the sacred texts that we've received, I guess, because I felt like if it's anywhere, it's going to be here. It's not, this isn't propaganda. This isn't reframing. This isn't a reader's digest version of God's truth. Like this is it. This is either the word of God or this whole thing's a sham. Mm. Um, so I, there were occasionally some things, but it was often indirectly. It was through the spiritual seeking of some other writers who weren't even remotely Christian, as far as I can tell, like Franz Kafka. You know, he's grappling with the idea of God. And even in the trial, he's grappling with Roman Catholicism in some ways. And I loved Kafka. So that kind of thing actually had some impact on me in a way that I don't remember other things really getting to me. Well, it was kind of a negative thing. I, I was drawn to all sorts of revolutionary political writings and, you know, like these like French radicals from back in the sixties and so forth. And when I would read their stuff, it would be thrilling, like, oh, wow, like, you know, radical social upheaval or, you know, kind of this vision of a new social order or whatever. But then I wrecked my back, which I might have mentioned um, to you before. But when I wrecked my back, all of a sudden I was like, wait, so I'm interested in radical social upheaval and stuff, but I also can barely walk. And if there's a revolution, I might be in real trouble because <laughs> I, I can't even ride my bike anymore with the other radical bike riding revolutionaries. I'm just going to be the guy who, like, can't get any food. And I was like, and I work at a hospital where there are all these people in hospital beds. What happens when the revolution comes? Who's going to make sure their life support stays on? You know? So there are all these basic questions that started coming up, that, like these practical realities. 
that made that revolutionary posturing suddenly seem very hollow. So I realized, okay, so the stuff that I'm drawn to and that people think is really cool and people would like pass books around, oh, you got to read this, this wild, you know, new, you know, school of thought that we've kind of discovered. It's always like the hipsters are looking for cool stuff. Mostly well, I would get these things, but I would always test it against my own reality, which is a lot of pain and suffering in my own body. Because I was just a mess for a long time, for years, in fact. And then I would test it against the other obvious things I had. Like, I care about these people over here, and how is this going to affect them? Because they're not cool, and they're not 23 years old and physically strong. <clears throat> Able to, like, live off of corn chips or whatever these other you know, vegan radicals are doing. So, mm-hmm. um, so it was mostly for me, it was meeting my wife. And she went off a little while after I met her and connected with her. She went off to do graduate work at a Quaker seminary and she began to call herself a Christian. And I was like, that's cool. I'm not afraid of that. I'm not going to recoil, but it's not my thing. I've got my Bible on the shelf and I'm, I respect Jesus as a teacher or something or wherever I was at that point in my life. But it was my wife's goodness, uh, her, her steadfastness in her prayer life. Like every morning she was reading scripture over breakfast and there I am eating my oatmeal, no scripture in front of me, right? So there's clearly some distance. And, and it didn't seem quite right. And then our first year of marriage was really hard because I was just very selfish and just kind of a jerk. Um, I was really absorbed in my own creative life. Um, and it was just kind of, uh, it was hard for me to unlearn the habits of selfishness that I'd been racking up for a long time. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, so after about a year, we were already off to a very rocky start in terms of marriage. I was like, I got to figure things out. And, uh, with her encouragement, I began to, um, I took some time off of work. I was doing some volunteering. I started going to mass. At first, I was going to Protestant churches. I didn't want to go back to Catholicism. I felt like that would make like my parents right. I was like, okay, they can have their you know Catholic thing. I'll do my own thing. It's going to be pure. It's going to be closer to you know the Bible or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to have all that hierarchy, all that awful, oppressive hierarchy, you know, it's like, which, which is totally <laughs> essential and beautiful, but you, you don't understand it when you're outside of it. Right. And then I, uh, I was going to Protestant churches, especially with Liz on the weekends. And then I was still hungry for Jesus during the week. And so I started going to daily mass. And once you start doing that, and once you start going back to confession and so forth, it's, it's game over, you know, game over. Yeah, like, it's like, oh no, like this, this is what I used to feel when I was a kid serving mass. Like, right. oh yeah, that is Jesus hiding in the piece of bread, right? Wow. Under the appearance of the bread. And, and once you've got that, where else do you go? You exactly. Know? Really quick, I'm going to do a reset for anyone just joining us now. You're listening to the voice of Professor Stephen Cramp. He is the Department Chair of Theology and Humanities here at John Paul the Great Catholic University. And we've just been talking about a little bo- a bit about um, his reversion and kind of his journey and his wrestling match with the Lord to bring him back to the faith. Uh, exploring that a little bit through his writing and through the people around him um, and through reading scripture um, or his lack of reading scripture. And so now I kind of want to um, visit the guiding excerpt from JP2's encyclical letter to artists, um, which I think kind of actually connects to what we've been talking about right now. Uh, JP2, he writes, obedient to their inspiration in creating works, both worthwhile and beautiful, artists not only enrich the cultural heritage of each nation, and of all humanity, but they also render an exceptional social service in favor of the common good. Um, and so, Professor Cramp, I'm really interested in your reflection on the snippet from JP2's encyclical, but um, I want to say one quick thing. I just think it's interesting how you were talking about how it was sort of non-Christian writers who made you that put, put that spark in you kind of to explore just deeper things. So I just think that's a real reflection of no matter 
uh, secular or not, like we're all, we all are searching for truth and there's just different mediums that we express that. And so I love this quote, especially because it's that enrichment of the cultural heritage of each nation and of all humanity. Um, and so I'm just curious in how that maybe is manifested in your life as a writer and now in mm. your strong Catholic faith, right. As a writer. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a great question. Um, the, I mean, this, the, uh, the sec- selection there from JP2's letter to artists that you bring up is so rich and it's, it's also complicated. You know, you can push at these different aspects of it, you know, obedient to their inspiration, right? That first phrase, I'm not going to be obnoxious and make us talk about that for 15 minutes, but, but obedience, right? Artists don't like obedience. And we've got a, a general sense of the artist as a rebel now in our culture, which is a real, uh, it's a tragic um, misunderstanding of the role of the artist, right? But, but that's very much the artist is expected to transgress and to challenge boundaries and so forth. As if, beauty could only be arrived at through some sort of revolt. I don't, I don't quite understand where that, how that computes, but since, since the Romantics at least, and I think even earlier than that, there's been a sense of, uh, of the artist as a rebel. And so obedience is hard for artists in the first place. Um, it's one of the reasons so many artists, I think, present themselves as being kind of like marginal Catholics. Even Catholic artists mm-hmm. will be like, oh, I'm, I'm Catholic, but, um, you know, as if, or as if like, you know, you, one has to be like a borderline heretic in order to actually be an, a, a, a legit artist as well as um, a That's person right. of faith, which is very strange to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, obedience to their inspiration, right? And every artist has inspirations. You know, you wake up and you eat some waffles and you're going to have an inspiration, but is that actually the work of the Holy Spirit in you calling you to something? And I, I think JP2 is very gentle about it here, but I bet he could have written a lot of paragraphs about uh, spiritual discernment. For me, as an artist, I'm like, I've got to discern. What is it What is it that I'm committing myself to here? How am I going to take these gifts that I've been given and then dedicate them with the limited time that I have? I don't want to waste time, because I, when I was younger, um, it, was, it was amazing how much time I had to write, and it's also amazingly depressing how little of value came out of that. And so when I came back to my faith in 2008, I filled up a dumpster with my binders and so forth, like all of my old poetry went in there. Wow. And it was momentarily painful, but in the same way that any sort of, like, you know, setting a broken leg is painful, but you know it's what you need to do. I, 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 there was so much darkness that had crept in. If you're out of your, out of your um, true self for that long, if you're away from your faith for you know, over a decade, you're going to be producing lots of material if you're an artist, sure, but how much of it has any value? You've severed yourself from the source of all good and all truth and all beauty. Wow. So, yeah, so what I was doing was I was rendering an exceptional social service in the favor of me, <laughs> right? Hey, check me out. Look how amazing I am. Look how transgressive I can be. Look how clever I can be. Give me attention. Give me validation because I obviously don't have a connection with the God of love where I would get that love otherwise, so I've got to look for it elsewhere, and I'm going to have to look for it in some abstract audience that might be out there who would affirm me in the decisions that I've made, which was which is a sad enough position to be in that I can look back with some pity on myself and not just look back with frustration. But I do see a lot of wasted time. So now I've got limited time. You know, I've got my family. I've got my obligations here at the school. I've got all sorts of things that keep me uh, away from my, my desk and my, my writing projects. But at the same time, I'm glad for that because it means that I've got to be careful about what I do. And so there's always discernment. And within that discernment, I really do believe that God works 
because God isn't only interested in inspiring the books of Scripture, and then he's like, I don't care about what happens after this. It's like God loves each and every one of us so powerfully, and he takes such an interest in every single part of our lives. My wife and I laugh, you know, about people who get frustrated by Christians saying, like, you know, like God's involved in their diet plan or whatever. And, you know, these non-believers will be like, God doesn't care about your diet plan. And we're like, yes, God cares about your diet plan. God cares way more about your diet plan than you do. Like, God, there's, no, there's no bottom to God's ability to care. It's not like God is an overwhelmed bureaucrat, like, oh, gosh, another diet plan to worry about. <laughs> no, God loves us. God cares about us. God cares about the words that I'm writing. Right. He's saying, you're my precious son. And if you turn to me, I'm going to guide your hand a little bit. Mm-hmm. They'll still be your words. They'll still be written in freedom. But we'll be also, there'll be a collaboration here. And it's going to be so much better as a result. That might also mean that God reaches out and says, you've got an idea and you think it's really good. And you've got this you know, ability to write and you've got, even got the pen in your hand. But I'm just going to put my hand on your hand and say, not now. Or not ever. Mm-hmm. Because you being willing to use your gifts for me is all I can ask. But I've got something else in mind. And it might be the sacrifice of this time, of this gift that you have to the other duties that I've given you in your life, that sacrifice might be more pleasing to me than any short story you write would ever be. But artists don't like to talk about sacrifice. We're not a sacrificial, you know, personality type. So that's that's been a hard thing for me, but it's also a great thing because I feel like I've been brought closer to Christ and his cross through the frustrations of my writing as much as I have through the other trials of my life. That was so incredibly beautiful. I know that people people out there can't see it, but I just feel like, I don't know that that struck a chord in me and was was very beautiful. Um, I guess I just keep thinking um, that that what you said about the sacrifice of a gift might be like all that he's asking of us. And I think even in that exploration, um, I don't know. Wow, I'm just so moved right now. I don't even have words. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to ask you another question. But sure, sure. <laughs> no, and we can come back to it. Yeah, but, but it's hard. Yeah, it's, it's it's hard for an artist because um, JP two in his letter to artists, he talks about the artist being especially sensitive to beauty. Yes, and the artist having the ability to bring others to know God through beauty. Mm-hmm. I was talking about it with my freshman yesterday. Beauty is very much a way to God. Yeah, right? Th- thanks to Saint Bonaventure, like the Via Pulcritudina, we've got a way to God through beauty, and mm-hmm. in our world which doesn't want to talk about the truth of God or the goodness of God and morality and all that other stuff. But beauty might still be a path for a lot of people to get closer to God. And you can see why the devil would work so hard against artists and against the arts and against culture in general, because it continues to be a way that a lot of people are open to, even if they're closed off to other ways to God. Mm -hmm. So of course there's going to be an attempt to pervert it and drag artists astray and all of that. But within that, it's like, okay, so I, I could bring people closer to God through beauty and I have this ability, I've got these ideas, all I need is the time and the avenue to share it. And and it's hard to make that sacrifice. And you, you can see the good that would come of it. But then think about Jesus in the garden. Father, let this cup pass. Because if you give me another 10 years, just think of all the people I can heal. Right. Think of all the blind people who could see. Think of all the people who could hear about your love. Right. Just give me 10 more years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And he didn't. Mm-hmm. He said, I'm going to be obedient. Not, not my will, but yours be done. Mm-hmm. That's, and, and for an artist to say that is, is a great challenge because we're all, like every artist is more aware than ever of the beauty of the world and of what is being lost yeah. through that sacrifice. But at the same time, welcome to the cross, you know. 
Wow. Welcome to the cross, everybody. Nobody gets out. And artists like to pretend like, oh, I can just have like my bohemian life mm-hmm. and I can I can have nice paintings on my walls and eat my like, you know, kind of like cool boutique, you know, food over here, my kind of pseudo hippie artsy food. Mm-hmm. And I can have like a very sweet life and then I can kick off and look, I got out without suffering. Wow. Like, what kind of Christian discipleship is that? Yeah. Like artists, come on, guys, we got to be ready to take up the cross every bit as much as the people who are working hard and, you know, sweating over in the fields or people who are scrambling with big families over here or whatever. Like the cross is always going to be part of our discipleship. And if we run from it, I think we've really let Jesus down. Well, I wish that we could talk for eight more hours. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, we're at the end of our our time here. Um, But I have no doubt that you'll circle back as a guest again because we need more than just a half hour of Professor Cramp in our on our radio show. But I just want to thank you so much for being here and for sharing that wisdom. I feel like um, it was deeply moving for me, uh, just relating on that artistic level. And um, I just I thank you so much for being vulnerable and sharing your own testimony and just um, all the wisdom that you've acquired in your in your time here on the planet. <laughs> so thank you, Professor Cram, for being here. Oh, it's been great to be here, really. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, next in our hour, we will be chatting with Professor Cramp. Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Elizabeth Cramp, who also dabbles in many different areas of writing. She is a skilled poet as well and uh, the editor of Convivium, 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 an online journal of arts, culture, and testimony. She has also done some work for the National Shrine of Elizabeth Ann Seton. And on top of all of that, she is also a fellow Illinois native just like me. So I am very excited to get to sit down together with her and chat with her. Um, So you really won't want to miss this next conversation with an awesome woman. So stay tuned. And we are back in the vault at John Paul the Great Catholic University. I'm your host, Bailey Garland. And I'm a little biased because we just spoke with one of my favorite professors at JP Catholic, Professor Stephen Cramp, who shared some awesome insights about the surrendering of our gifts to God and how that can be just as powerful as using them. Now I am equally excited to speak with our next guest who shares a last name, but alone holds very unique experiences in the world of writing. So joining us now in the studio is Professor Elizabeth Cramp. Welcome, Professor. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Bailey. Thank you for coming in. I'm super excited to just share this conversation. We were talking a little bit before the interview and saying a lot of awesome stuff about the Elizabeth Seton Shrine and just how she's been following kind of both of us. And I'm mm-hmm. just excited to learn a little bit more about that. But um, before we get we begin, let's just start in a prayer. We cover ourselves in the whole world in the blood of Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this time together. Thank you for the saints who live holy lives and who show us how to run the good race, how to fight the good fight. We ask for the graces to be able to use our gifts as they did to be able to glorify you and to live in eternity with you. For we know that is why we are put on this earth and that you love us abundantly and want us to be home with you. And we ask all this through the intercession of our Blessed Mother as we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, Professor Cramp, why don't we just start with you telling us a little bit about yourself? Ah, well, I am... Uh, a mother. I have three sons, 12, 9, and 7. 
Um, married to Steve Cramp. We live in Valley Center, California. Um, and I've had the, the pleasure of working at JP Catholic since 2017. Um, just as an adjunct, I, I came on board to teach one writing class, college writing. Not everyone's favorite class. That's a class that usually it means that you didn't pass the, the writing placement exam. But what happens in that class is through conversation about our writing, um, about grammar and uh, syntax, right? The, the word order that we choose and diction. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of students kind of apply themselves or understand better what they're doing through writing. So I really enjoy teaching college writing, um, which I, I started doing when I worked at UC Merced in the merit um, writing department. And then I've taught that at, at the community college level as well. How did um, you yourself get into writing? What was the mm. journey of that? Well, I mentioned being a mother. And for me, my mother um, was a real guiding light in, in my own writing process. Um, I think sometimes a parent can offer a kind, uh, some help with self-understanding. So my, my mom's name is Mary, Mary Beasley. And she helped me edit the stories that I was writing. You know, she just, just with questions in the margins. Why did this happen? What do you mean here? What about this? And those kinds of questions, they're thinking questions. And they were so troubling to me. <laughs> they were so frustrating because it meant that I had to do more thinking about the story I was telling. So, um, you know, just with her, her support, uh, my parents, you know, we had, we had a, an old uh, computer and I could type my, my stories up and illustrate them. Um, but they were always so pleased to to read my work and uh, to support the small theater troupe that my friends and I had had put together. Um, so, so I think sometimes it takes someone else as a mentor or a parent helping you see something about your vocation, like where your gifts are. Um, and then, yeah, following that, trying to to understand what that meant. What does it mean to to want to write or to be a writer? Um, and that, that's meant in different seasons or phases of my life. Um, I've had to kind of test that again. Like how, how am I, how is my writing being um, for the good of, of others? Mm. And um, what am I doing with writing? How does it connect me to other people? Absolutely. And um, so have you always been writing in, you know, various genres or formats or I guess what's mm. the, the language there? Yeah. No, if, um, as a as a child, really interested in, in fiction and I'm saying child, you know, like that's through high school even mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> like fiction and and plays. And then um, once I got to college, having some poetry professors, I can name a few, you know, Cheryl St. Germain, Anna Leahy, uh, Beth Ann Fennelly. Um, all three of those women um, were instructive and helped me read other poets better. And, and when you are reading more optimally, you know, the writing, the writing is nourished. Um, so I, I started seeing myself in college um, primarily more as a writer of poetry. Oh, wow. And so um, how is, does that look different than writing the fiction, like, do you sit down and write a poem much differently than you mm. would your your prose or your essays? Yeah, prose and poetry, they, pardon me, <clears throat> they are so different to write for me. Um, 
I'm writing essays for St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Shrine. Oh, excuse me. <clears throat> um, so, so as I write the prose, uh, that takes a lot of, of research reading. And I, I'm a slow writer, so it, it takes a while to, to draft. You know? and, and I do, I do feel like just going for it, writing down all of my thoughts, getting it out, it's a first, first draft. Um, that's not something coherent that I would give to someone else to read. Um, it takes me a lot of a lot of practicing with my my thoughts and syntax, figuring out how to say something, um, and that that would be a similar process for for poetry. Um, I use lots and lots of paper, <laughs> lots of paper, um, and that's I have to see visually, kind of how each draft has has developed. Oh, that's cool to see it like physically kind of mm-hmm. develop in itself. So do you save every draft as you're writing? Oh, gosh, <laughs> that's too many drafts to save. <laughs> but I do save the, the significant changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started writing more on paper when I was a student. Um, as a 19 year old, I went abroad to Tanzania as a, and uh, did a, oh, cool. a study abroad program there. Mm-hmm. And we had two computers among 20 students. Mm-hmm. Um, up 20 American students on the U.S. the University of Dar es Salaam campus, um, and so I just had to go back to writing by hand. Writing a 25-page paper by hand meant, you know, I had to, to write it before I could go and type it. And I saw the the benefit of that writing by hand and then typing later meant that I was not trying to compose on a computer, not staring at a blank screen, but instead seeing that as an editorial process in itself. Oh, that's really cool. I feel like that's foreign to us right now to mm-hmm. especially write that amount on paper. But I, I know a lot of, um, especially the professors here, I, I've noted, and I like to take um, notes by hand just because there was like that tangible, like you have to, I think it's like three times it passes through your mind and then like your senses and then back to your mind because you're seeing it written out. So I think there's something like more fulfilling or just like there's more depth when it goes through that three-step process. Um but I, I also know that you do some editing. So what's the what's kind of your process look like for editing as opposed to sitting down to write something? Oh, well, it depends on if I'm editing my own work mm-hmm. or um, which I, I find that's that's just over and over. And I just I read out loud a lot. So I, I reread whether it's an essay or a poem. I'm just reading it out. And as an actress, you know, I, I know that that's what you're you're used to reading out on, mm-hmm. on um, from the page. Um, you can hear it better. You can find out if it makes sense um, or if there's a better way to put it. So editing my own work, uh, that's a starting point. I do that with other people's work too. When I'm reading um, for Convivium, I was the head editor for, for that journal um, from 2019 to 2021. Oh, wow. Um, and that, you know, like we were looking for cohesion among the, the pieces, the, the poetry, the fiction, the nonfiction, the interview. So so I would give it a pass where I would, I would read over the whole thing out loud to see if it if it was alluring as as a reader in that way. Oh yeah, I think that's really interesting and um, especially just the relationship how, how does that work when you're editing someone else's work? Um, I guess in terms of professionality and also I'm sure you're friends with some people or mm-hmm. um, how, how does that kind of work when you're sitting down together and saying like, oh, these are the things that I noticed? Mm-hmm. Gosh, you pick up a lot of, a lot of uh, habits and ways of doing that. 
between teaching and editing, right? That's as a teacher, I'm trying to draw out of a student his or her own best writing practices. That's weird to say draw out of, draw out of them practices, but I'm helping them figure out how to, to practice their writing better mm. and how to practice their editing better. Um, <clears throat> so that's, I'm trying to adduce something from them. Um, I think there's something similar about kind of midwifing something out of uh, a writer when you're, when you're doing the editing. Um, but it, it, we don't usually think of that as teach, being a teachable thing. I'm not trying to teach them. Um, some of them are teachers themselves. But, um, but trying to, to talk about what works in a piece um, or what as a reader is, um, you know, what's not, not happening or what, what more information I might need. Um, those are usually the kinds of questions that I would be asking. Um, but, but I do say for Convivium, we solicited a lot of, a lot of pieces that were already, uh, pretty powerful and, mm. and, um, well done. So how, um, what are some maybe tips that you would give mm. to maybe one of the students listening who are, who's trying to develop their writing skills? But I know a lot of times it can be nerve wracking to share their work, but as mm -hmm. if they're trying to just edit their own, um, you mentioned speaking out loud, the, the piece, but anything else that you've come to learn? Well, something that I've done, and I've heard other writers talk about it, um, if you fall in love with a piece, right? so whether you're a, a fiction writer or you're writing a, a play or a poem, um, if you fall in love with someone else's work, just transcribing that. Again, that's, as you were pointing out, Bailey, the hand, um, <laughs> the, the hand being is essential, the handwriting, mm -hmm. but writing out someone else's poem, you know, for, for me, some Keats poems or Les Murray poems, Elizabeth Jennings. Um, I've written those poems and then it helps me understand from inside how the poet is able to achieve certain, a certain atmosphere or tone with, with the diction that they've chosen or how their syntax works, how it, you know, where the, the end breaks are. Um, and so, so that's a way to, to inhabit someone else's work in order to learn from it. Um, and I don't know if that answers your question directly, but, but if, if, if you're looking for ways of improving your own work, I would say keep reading, mm. read, 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 and read good stuff. How do you figure out what, what work is quality? Um, right? it, it, you might love genre fiction, and that's, that might be what you're, you're trying to, to establish yourself in, but also reading classics, you know, the, the greats. Um, right? I, I'm so... I'm thankful for all my time <laughs> nursing on the couch with my children um, or sitting on the couch with my children and, and reading. I, I think that that's enlivened my own uh, work in the last 12 years of being a mother. Um, just the, the amount of reading I've done um, out loud with my kids, mm -hmm. but also um, those early days of being a mom and reading a lot of Russian novels. Um, because I had time and I, I wasn't pursuing a degree at that point. Um, in fact, I felt like I'd somehow dropped off the face of the earth. Um, I was a new Catholic um, and uh, an older mother, 31 at the, the time that I had my first son. And so um, trying to figure out how to uh, continue writing and listening to the Holy Spirit and what season am I in now? How do I, how do I, 
use my talents and, and gifts um, was a big question for me as I stopped working more formally outside of the house to be at home with my, my first son. Oh, that was beautiful. And I, I actually have a follow-up question for that, but um, I'm going to do a quick reset just in case anyone's just joining us now, just to remind you that you are tuning into JP2 Radio. This is a new program called Letter to Artists. And today we've been discussing writing, um, all different kinds, and just talking about how to surrender our talents. Um, and on with us right now is Professor Elizabeth Cramp, one of our humanities professors here at JP Catholic. Uh, we've been chatting a little bit about just her journey um, coming to writing, and uh, now she just brought up a, a beautiful point about um, how when she she was a new Catholic and she um, also was a new mother. Um, and I kind of want to pivot us to the JP two. Uh, snippet to ask a question about that. So just to remind everybody what our snippet is, this is from JP2's encyclical letter to artists. Obedient to their inspiration in creating works both worthwhile and beautiful, artists not only enrich the cultural heritage of each nation and of all humanity, but they also render an exceptional so social service in favor of the common good. And so, um, Professor, as you were talking about just what, what you're saying right now and um, your new motherhood and your new um, entrance into the Catholic Church, I just, that word obedient, and we talked a little bit about it before the interview, but um, kind of finding how to be obedient to the Holy Spirit in that season of life, but it almost seemed as if like your reading was enriching you and then therefore enriching your children. And I find it actually very beautifully symbolic that you are nursing your children as you are reading because mm. that's going to so play a role like you're nourishing yourself as you're nourishing them. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and um, sometimes desperately so. Like, <laughs> I was I was reading, um, <clears throat> I, I somehow made it out of college being an English major and a creative writing um, student without reading any Russian novels. Mm. And I think that seems somehow paltry to me. Like, what was I? I was reading a lot of other good stuff. But uh, so years later, sitting on the couch with my son, I started reading all the Tolstoy and uh, Dostoevsky that I had earlier missed. Um, and so, yeah, the, the quote that you just gave to us, especially since it begins with obedience, which is a tough word for me. I actually was just writing about that with St. Elizabeth Seton being obedient to the church. Mm. Uh, she, she um, her last kind of instruction or encouragement to her sisters of charity was be children of the church, be children of the church. I wish that we could know what kind of, what, what way she said that. Um, but she, those were her words. And um, she was trying to do what Jesus says about turn and be a small child. That's what she was telling her sisters to be a small, you know, be adult sisters. She's telling them to be children. Um, in obedience to the church. Um, and, I, you know, especially as a convert, obedience was not in my vocabulary before, except in kind of a negative way. Um, I was very much you know, looking for ways to get out from underneath authority or break free or see liberation in, in a way of being anti-authoritarian. Um, and so, so that in my own conversion process, which was years in the making. It's, it's something that takes a lot of listening, listening to promptings, sorting through them. What does it mean that my life is moving this way? Um, 
I'd been hanging out with, with Quakers at a boarding high school where I worked and meeting for worship was part of our, our daily work. Mm -hmm. 15 minutes of silence in the morning. Once a week we would sit for 45 minutes in silence. And the idea in the Quaker tradition is that if the Holy Spirit speaks to you, you know, that you're, you're moved to speak to your brothers and sisters, or you perhaps even sing or uh, share, share something from your heart. Um, and so, so I was understanding that pretty readily, um, even before I was willing or interested in uh, listening to, to scripture and to Jesus. Um, but yeah, that, that, that quote, Right. Obedience is how it begins. And, and it took me a while to figure out how I was already doing that, listening to, not to myself, but listening to, to these promptings of the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, yeah, so to befriend that word took a while. Um, but how I understand it now is even sometimes when I have ideas as a writer, Sometimes I'm, I'm putting them aside because I see that my vocation as a mother is preeminent and I have, you know, I have to fulfill some of those, those tasks of, around the house or with my children. Um, so, so that's also for the common good um, that I'm trying to do that, that work as um, kindly, lovingly, mercifully as I can. Um, I don't see that at odds. I, I think I used to, that, Motherhood meant um, that it usurped my my personal or writing time, um, <clears throat> but if it hadn't been for being a mother, I wouldn't have stumbled into some of the ways of what I call head editing. Um, I, you know, because my hands were oftentimes busy, um, and I didn't, or I didn't have a notebook with me. I just got in the habit of memorizing some of my poems and taking walks um, with my children meant that I I could edit in my head, usually small pieces, um, smaller poems, but, but I could um, commit to memory some of my work and then edit it when I was doing the dishes or when I was, you know, um, you spend a lot of time in bathrooms as a mom. <laughs> so, so I guess some of it was to, to keep myself um, interested and engaged. Oh, I think that's so beautiful. And actually it's funny um, because something that Professor Stephen Cramp said in the first interview um, that struck me so deeply. I've actually been, I haven't stopped thinking about it, but he was saying like sometimes um, the most like powerful gift we can give is like to surrender the talent for uh, just a time being and saying like, Lord, I have this gift um, and I lay it down and you know how hard it is for me not to use it. Um, but that's what you're asking and, and you're saying like, oh, and in at some point because your vocation as a mother became like came first, I think what a like a double offering it is to say like, Lord, this is something I really enjoy and I'm good at. Therefore, it, it's a good and I'm using it for you. But there's like something else being demanded of me in this moment. Um, and it just takes me right back to the quote, the obedient um, like to that inspiration. And I and I just want to read like, obedient to their inspiration, creating works both worthwhile and beautiful um, artists not only enrich the cultural heritage of each nation and of all humanity, but they also render an exceptional social service in favor of the common good. And I just think if JP2 says the family is the cell of society, so that's surrendering. I mean, you, if you're present to your children, 
I mean, that's the three more lives that are, you know, going to go out after you. And I just, I just think that's such a powerful connection for you to say like, oh, this is something that I have and that I'm clearly pursuing, but then there's another thing that the Lord is like calling you to. Um, and so just balancing those, the two different gifts, um, both very artistic. I think motherhood is very artistic in itself. I mean, the act it's creating. <laughs> well, and, and something in the quote that you just read, you know, we're talking about works both worthwhile and beautiful. Mm. Um, when you see that your family is worthwhile and beautiful. Uh, yes. And right now our Philip is, um, he's been making books called Henry and Roger books and he's made about 20 or 30. He's seven and he just gets busy in the mm. study in the mornings he wakes up and goes and starts drawing and writing. And they're very simple, uh, well, a lot of war stories, a lot of <laughs> things uh, exploding. But um, but I'm reminded, as I speak to you, about my mom's interest in me as a person right. and in her, her support and love for my creative abilities, you know, like seeing those and, and helping me recognize them. Um, she... She and my dad both saw that our family was worthwhile and beautiful to to um, to give attention and love to, um, and and I really do think that that's in, in my own experience um, that that really has made um, that that seeing of the the common good how how any anything artistic that I produce it's not always for other people like overtly right. but it, it but but there's there's a deep connection and and so it makes sense that it's in service to beauty and mm. and goodness um and just going back to say that steve cramp i i've seen him do that exactly what he's talked about the surrendering especially as as a teacher um as you know, the breadwinner in our family um and even just the yeah, seeing um, oh, from an outsider looking in, it might be called discipline, like he's self-disciplined as a, as a writer. Um, but I also see that as as obedience to the Holy Spirit, and and that right his his conversion daily right. affects my own, and so we're galvanized together to mm. to share in this. Oh, that's beautiful, and I I think it's funny actually that we are talking about the vocation of motherhood because before our time is up, I do really want to talk a little bit more about how you got involved with the St. Elizabeth Ann Steen Shrine. And she, I mean, her vocation was to be a mother. And then we were talking about how she was calling us to be children of the church. So how did you um, sort of get involved with the shrine? Oh, goodness. Well, um, I don't know how much time we've got left, but the short of it, I actually was at a Father Sarfraz homily here. We were, we were oh. having mass. It was St. Monica's feast day, and he was talking about St. Monica and his own his own conversion. And I uh, and I was thinking about a friend of mine who just loves St. Monica. Um, her name's Suzanne Wolf. She's the novel, uh, novelist of um, Elizabethan murder mysteries. Um, she she and her husband Greg Wolf uh, do Slant pub, uh, Slant is a publi- publisher. Um, and so I'd been thinking about her, and then about an hour later. Um, got an email saying, would you like to write for St. Elizabeth Seton wow. Shrine? Um, so it did feel actually kind of rooted in motherhood. She, her love for St. Monica um, 
you know, I, she told me about that when I had interviewed her many years ago about her book, Confessions of X. Um, so motherhood has a way of bonding other mothers. And both when she was approaching me about the, the project, um, Seton and Culture Essays, um, I think we were both looking at the motherhood of St. Elizabeth Seton, who had five children and then went to simultaneously, I mean, she was mothering those children, her three girls and two boys, and also founding the, the Sisters of Charity. So, so she became Mother Seton, um, but she is a saint who um, has all sorts of things to say about actual lived parenthood, uh, something that caught my attention. She said, my saucy boys almost mastered me. Um, and that's when she became a little bit more real to me when I was reading her biography. Um, Kath- Kathleen O'Donnell has written a really wonderful uh, uh, biography about St. Elizabeth Seton. And um, since I have three boys who sometimes are saucy <laughs> and sometimes make me feel like I'm, yeah, I'm really trying to, to figure out how to, to uh, listen to God and be a good mother, um, I was I'm glad for St. Elizabeth Seton's companionship mm. in in motherhood and and as a writer too. She she wrote poems and wrote such tremendous spiritual writings. She also translated um, from French the Rule of Saint Vincent de Paul and um, other other works. Oh wow! And yeah, unfortunately we are out of time, but I was so, that was a, the best little spark notes version oh, yeah, yeah. ever. That was perfect. But um, thank you so much for being here today. It's been such a fruitful conversation and I'm just, I'm so grateful personally because as we were talking earlier, it's been just a joy to be able to sit down and, and go a little deeper with people I, who I don't get to see very often on campus. But um, yeah, just thank you for sharing everything in your heart, especially how um, your kind of two vocations are equally artistic and how they totally intertwine. Um, So I guess that's it for this episode. Um, Thank you so much, all of you out there, for tuning in. Um, Remember, you were listening to Letter to Artist from The Vault at John Paul the Great Catholic University. This was born out of a partnership with JP2 Radio, so be sure to check out the website, jp2radio.com. Let us know your thoughts on the show. We've got an email. We've got social media. You can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search up JP2 Catholic Radio, and we really want to hear from you. Um, We'd love some feedback on the show, um, particularly this one since it's new. But on any of our shows, we want to know if the Holy Spirit's moving you through these or if you're just enjoying listening to them. Um, As of now, I am your host, Bailey Garland, signing off with some encouragement for your day. Be not afraid. You artists who perceive in yourselves this kind of divine spark. As poet, writer, actor, architect, sculptor, musician, feel the obligation not to waste this talent, but to develop it, to put it at the service of your neighbor and of humanity as a whole. May the beauty which you pass on to generations still to come be such that it will stir them to wonder. Society needs you, artists. The world in which we live needs beauty.